I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tortoise. Hello, it's Basha here and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. When the enemy is a shadow, more of an idea than a person, who do you actually end up fighting? That's the question that's facing Israel and its defence force as they advance a ground offensive into Gaza following the terror attack on October the 7th, which killed 1,400 Israelis and saw more than 220 people taken hostage by Hamas, the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. In this episode of the Slow Newscast, my colleagues Chloe Hadjimatheou and producer Claudia Williams investigate the man said to be the Hamas mastermind behind that attack and the story that they uncover of a man used to hiding in the shadows for more than two decades helps reveal the people and the ideas that are driving this new catastrophic chapter in the Middle East. Over to Chloe. Huda took a trip recently to the Erez checkpoint, the only crossing between Israel and the blockaded Gaza Strip. I was with an international organisation coming to talk about the environmental impact of the siege of Gaza. The Erez crossing is only around 60 miles away from her home in Hebron in the West Bank, a couple of hours' drive at most. But Huda's Palestinian, and so to get to Erez, she had to apply for a permit more than two weeks in advance. And then there are the checkpoints. Huda isn't even crossing over into Gaza. She's just going to meet people at the border. We were told not to bring our computers with us, our phones. Um, we had security people coming on the bus searching us. The Erez crossing's a military base. I've been there and crossed through it into Gaza. It was years ago, but I still remember it well. It's this huge metal building surrounded by soldiers with guns. And when you enter, you have to walk through one metal door after another. Each has a red and green light above it. And while you're waiting for the light to turn green, soldiers are barking instructions down from this high platform with bulletproof glass in front of it. It's like nowhere else I've ever been. You know, sometimes a pigeon cannot fly over the the wired... uh, that's Ares. It's like a huge building with, with cameras all over. It's here at Ares that all the violence and the killing started on October 7th. But Hood is there a week before all that. Nobody knows what's about to happen. 
And when we were standing there, there were army all over the place with guns. There was a, a balloon with a camera, and then there was a drone hovering over our heads. What Erez means is unmistakable. It's a demonstration of the sophistication and the power of Israel's armed forces. But just days later, Huda wakes up to the unthinkable. Shalom from Jerusalem. Today will be marked as a dark day in history. Waking up on that morning, hearing and seeing the pictures, I was like, how did this even happen? I, I couldn't believe what, what, what was happening. Here's what's happening. It's Saturday morning, actually a national holiday in Israel, so there's this sleepy feeling around Erez, fewer personnel on duty than usual. At around 6.15am, black objects like giant insects cross over from Gaza. They're drones. None of the soldiers notice their quiet buzzing or the small bang when they detonate their explosives, taking out the cameras and warning systems. Moments later, groups of young men in black T-shirts and jeans silently slip across the fields. They know exactly where they're going, because as well as guns, they're holding maps of the military posts. Later, there'll be terrible acts of violence. Unarmed men, women and children murdered indiscriminately in their homes, sometimes in their beds. Kids shot while cowering under tables. Others mowed down as they try to flee. More than 200 people, including elderly men and women, themselves survivors of the concentration camps, will be taken away as hostages while Hamas gunmen call home to boast about killing Jews. And the terror attacks of the morning of October 7th will open a new, even more deadly chapter in the long history of violence and suffering, costing the lives of thousands of innocent people in Gaza. A humanitarian catastrophe for Palestinian families once again fleeing their homes. The risk of more conflict across the region and age-old fears and hatreds once more reignited around the world. But at the start, on that Saturday morning, it was precisely targeted. Bulldozers drive through the fence. Motorbikes stream across the breach. Overhead, young men dangle from paragliders with colourful sails, the type you'd normally see above a beach. Israelis in nearby communities and young people at a music festival stand staring up at them. Then, shots ring out. Everyone runs and tries to hide, believing that very soon, Israeli soldiers will be there to protect them. but almost all the nearby military bases and security posts have been taken out. No one's coming, not for hours. All that technology, the weapons and sophisticated defence systems that Huda saw, Hamas has bypassed all of it. They've been preparing for this day, watching, plotting and training for years. The man who's thought to have masterminded the whole thing He's there, in a video, released at the same time as the armed men are streaming across the border. Well, sort of. He's a shadow, a silhouette, 
His voice is eerily calm as he announces the start of a new wave of violent action against Israel. That disembodied voice is Mohammed Daif, head of Al Qassam Brigades, the military wing of Hamas. The picture that emerges from conversations I've had with people in Gaza, in Israel, and experts further afield suggests that it's not the politicians being interviewed on TV in crisp shirts, but Mohammed Daif who's calling the shots in Hamas these days. And that shift in leadership is having devastating repercussions for the Palestinian people and for Israelis, and possibly for the rest of us too. There's one question about the barbaric attacks that keeps coming back again and again. How did this happen? To answer that, you really need to get to the heart of Hamas, to try to get inside the leadership and understand both the military operation and also the political operation inside Gaza. The man who sits at the intersection of both these things is Mohammed Daif. But here's the thing, no one knows anything about him. That's the mystery. He, we, we think he is a shadow person. No one saw him, even in Gaza. It became some sort of like a, a ghost or a, a shadow. You know, even Hamas called him the shadow man. And I want to say here, this isn't an easy task. In investigating what we know of Mohammed Daif, I risk falling into the trap of mythologizing him. But it's the job of journalists to try and understand who was responsible. And to do that, we need to examine Hamas's strategy its relationship with the Palestinian people of Gaza and how that informs what happens next. I'm Chloe Hadjimatheou and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. In this episode, The Man Behind the Shadow. Like lots of people, I'm still trying to get my head around the sheer scale of what Hamas did on October 7th. Even those with a background in Israel's formidable intelligence services have been left bewildered. It was a Saturday morning. My wife went to a synagogue and then uh, she came back and uh, and she actually informed me um, that uh, something happened in the south uh, of Israel. Avi Malamed used to work in the field for Israeli intelligence services and was a senior government official on Arab affairs. We kind of like got phrases and sentences that in, in course of time became some kind of like, a, you know, almost a code, if you wish. The subcontext of what came Saturday morning was clearly something that was above what we, you know, used to know, relatively speaking. And the most terrible thing was that it was very clear that uh, this is only a friction of what's going on. Hamas broke through the barrier that splits Israel and Gaza. That fence is a symbol of fierce disagreement over land, statehood and violence that goes back decades. In 2006, Hamas won the election in Gaza, running on a community-centred platform promoting welfare. There hasn't been another general election since then. It's an Islamic movement whose stated aim is the establishment of a theocratic state under Sharia law on land they want to reclaim from Israel, who they say stole it from the Palestinian people. It's also a terrorist organisation responsible for devastating suicide attacks in Israel. Israel imposed a permanent blockade on the Gaza Strip. Everyone and everything coming in and out has to have a permit, 
and pass through a checkpoint. And Israel built formidable defence and security services that claim to be among the most sophisticated in the world. The performances of the intelligence were sometimes just jaw-dropping. They were able to reach a person in, a, in an apartment building in the second floor to the right-hand side, and the information was enormously accurate. I mean, it seems like almost like, you know, science fiction in a way. And that's the great mystery of October 7th. In spite of this surveillance, in spite of the physical security, not just in places like Erez, but the whole length of the Gaza Strip, somehow these men from one of the most overcrowded, poorest places on earth outfoxed the Israeli army. And, and that all, of course, boosted the shock. The morning of the attack, it wasn't just the Israelis who were taken by surprise. I woke up barely on the sounds uh, of, of the rocket. Mukaima Abu Sada is professor of political science at Al-Azhar University in Gaza City, the capital. I turned on the news and I was very much uh, uh, in shock that, that uh, uh, such an operation has taken place. For the professor, it was immediately clear what this meant. Now, I knew that this is, this is going to lead to a war. As someone who follows politics closely, he felt the wool had been well and truly pulled over everyone's eyes. Well, to be honest with you, uh, Hamas has succeeded in deceiving everyone, uh, deceived the Israeli intelligence community, deceived uh, uh, the Palestinians, deceived almost everyone. Hamas is different from Fatah, the party that rules over the rest of the Palestinians in the West Bank. Fatah's engaged politically and has been prepared to make concessions with the Israelis. When Hamas came to power, it was calling for Jews to be killed and insisted that armed struggle, not dialogue, was the only way forward. It's had a fractious relationship with Israel, punctuated by exchanges of rocket fire and deaths on both sides. But recently, things have been quieter, after years of stalemate, the organisation's leaders seemed more open to the possibility of a negotiated settlement, which would allow for an Israeli state alongside a smaller Palestinian one. And lately, Hamas has looked more focused on managing the economy than anything else. For the past two years, Hamas has been uh, looking for more permits for Palestinian labourers to work inside Israel, was very much interested in more getting more money from Qatar for uh, uh, rebuilding of the Gaza Strip, and, and there were no signs that they were interested in any escalation with Israel. Even Hamas's military wing had scaled things down. There were fewer rockets flying over the border into Israel. Two rounds of escalation or violence erupted between Israel and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas wasn't part of the escalation, wasn't part of the round of violence. It's not clear whether this was a deliberate tactic by the whole organisation or whether the military wing just took advantage of the circumstances. But when the Israelis saw, and they did see with their satellites and drones, the preparation for this attack taking place, they misread the signs. They were seeing the, the, the training. That's Avi Malamed, the former intelligence officer. We knew that Hamas is going is practicing invasion from the sea. We knew that. We knew that they are planning invasion from land. We saw Hamas 
using um, drones. We understood that the drones has a purpose. We saw the gliders. We saw all those things. Israeli intelligence officials could see Hamas training. But seeing is one thing. Understanding, it turns out, is a completely different skill. This death scenario apparently was not highly graded as an imminent threat. The Israelis believed that any attack would come at them in small enough bursts that they could contain it. And on the other side of the Erez crossing, the same thing was happening. Palestinians living in Gaza under Hamas were misreading the signs too. They did say something like they were talking about uh, uh, they're preparing for the big battle. But we always thought the big battle is going to be like the end of history or the end of the end of life, like uh, uh, Judgment Day. So we thought that this is something that's going to happen like many years from now. But we've never imagined that they were preparing for such an attack that, that was carried out on the 7th of October. Hamas officials have since admitted that even they were surprised by the effectiveness of the attack. It was an unmitigated, catastrophic failure by Israel's government. A former Israeli intelligence officer I spoke to told me that part of the problem was that while trying to get into the minds of the enemy, trying to understand men like Mohammed Daif, intelligence officials were making some fundamental mistakes. They believed that Hamas was looking to secure its own power and standing, and that if the Israeli state offered it assistance in the form of work permits for its population, for example, that Hamas would secure its reign and stay put. But for many Palestinians, including Hamas ideologues, the cause of reclaiming their land and ending the Israeli occupation has a far stronger pull than maintaining political power. And Avi Malamed, another former intelligence official, says analysts around the world are struggling to understand the method. By this horrifying attack that you conducted, you actually committed a collective suicide meaning you basically doomed Gaza Strip to disaster and yourself to disaster. And some are saying not only that you have doomed yourself to to be eliminated, you have actually murdered the Palestinian cause. So why did Hamas do it? And what was Mohammed Daif's endgame? I started covering Gaza Strip in uh, 1991. I started my job in uh, Channel One, the Israeli public uh, channel. And it was fascinating me to go to Gaza to see, you know, to cross the border, the nearest checkpoint in Gaza Strip. Shlomi Eldar is an Israeli journalist and filmmaker. He worked in Gaza for more than 20 years, and he's the author of two books on Hamas. He's followed the life of Mohammed Daif closely or as closely as anyone outside Hamas can. He was born in Hanunas. In those days, he was known as Mohammed al-Masri. The nickname al-Daif, meaning the guest, would come later, when to prevent assassination, he never spent more than a couple of nights in any one place. Three figures, important figures, were born in Hanunas, and they grew together, not at the same school, but at the same neighbourhood. Mohammed Daif's neighbourhood produced not just him, but several senior Palestinian political figures. Mohammed Dahlan would end up becoming the head of Fatah in Gaza. 
These days, there's no figure more hated there. After it became apparent he was financed and armed by the Americans to stage a coup against the democratically elected Hamas government. Eventually, he fled from Gaza. These days, he lives in exile in Abu Dhabi. Dave's other neighbour is still very much on the scene in Gaza. Yahya Sinwar is considered the overall head of Hamas on the ground. He stayed quiet during this conflict. It was Mohammed Daif who made the announcement on October 7th. Sinwar's just stepped forward briefly to offer the exchange of Israeli hostages for all Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails. By all accounts, Daif, Sinwar and Dahlan were close friends growing up, playing football together in the narrow alleyways of the refugee camp. Mohammed Daif's early years in the 60s and 70s were fairly typical of any young Palestinian his age. Raised on the anger and disenfranchisement of his parents, hearing how they were evicted from their land and lost everything. They lived together door by door. Part of them joined to the Hamas, part of them went to the, uh, joined to the, uh, to the Fatah. In 1987, the first Intifada, or uprising, broke out, and Mohammed Daif joined the young men throwing stones at Israeli soldiers. But the following year, he packed in the protests for a place at university where he studied engineering. After he studied in the Islamic University, he became more religious. He saw his friend Dahlan that was very important in, in the Fatah and he wanted to join the other, the opposite group in, 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 in Khan Yunus. At the time, Fatah was the big established political party. And he joined to Hamas, to part of the military wing. I think he thought that it would be very easy to him to be um, part of it, or to be very well-known activist. When he joined the, the Hamas, it was a small movement then to join to the Fatah. In 1989, Hamas says he was arrested and held for 16 months without trial. It's an experience shared by many Palestinian men. Soon after he was released, he found a senior Hamas mentor, someone people called the Engineer. Yahya Ayash earned that nickname making suicide vests, containing deadly explosives he mixed himself out of nail varnish remover and detergent. Throughout the 1990s, suicide bombs tore through Israel. That decade, hundreds of people were killed, many of them by Hamas. Israel responded by assassinating as many senior Hamas figures as it could. It was criticised by the international community because these assassinations often took out people around the intended target, including women and children. In 1996, the engineer was assassinated and Mohammed Daif took over. Shlomi Eldar, then a Gaza correspondent, was covering these hits on Hamas officials during this period. He remembers one particular incident in the early noughties. Israel tried to assassinate three of uh, Hamas act, uh, uh, terrorists that built a bomb there, and they were killed. And day after, they arranged a funeral. And I came with my Palestinian team to cover this funeral. On that day, there was a figure at the graveside. Of course, he was a mask, black mask. You know, the... Uh, the symbols of the Hamas, the, the green hat, and he was, of course, covered. 
I couldn't see him face, but you know, everyone with the in the funeral knew this is Muhammad Def. You can so you can see the the respect that everyone gave him when he just walked in the funeral. By now, he was firmly on Israel's hit list. In 2002, an Israeli helicopter launched a missile which struck the car he was driving. It's often said there are only three grainy images of Mohammed Daif. But with Shlomi's help, we've unearthed footage of the aftermath of that attack, filmed by local journalists at the scene. Mohammed Daif, in his 30s at this point, has been pulled from the smoking black mangled wreck. He's sitting upright, wearing jeans and sliders, but he's covered in blood and he's clearly in a bad way. He's the only survivor of the attack. Even in that state, he somehow manages to face away from the camera so we don't get a glimpse of his features. Mohammed Daif knew that the only way to survive was to stay out of sight. The Gaza Strip's a tiny area, around 25 miles long, and at its widest, it's seven miles across so it's next to impossible to keep any military activity out of the sights of Israeli drones. But Gaza has another, more useful feature. Its soil is soft and sandy. They say you could dig into it with an ice cream scoop. So Mohammed Daif built tunnels. He extended a vast web of them for miles, stretching all the way from the southern border into Egypt. Some of those tunnels are so big you can drive a car through them. And he's used those tunnels to survive. The men with nine souls. So Israel tried to assassinate him for, I think, three or four times. Looking through what I can find online, it looks more like seven times. It's unclear how many of his family members have been killed by the Israelis, probably his wife and two children. And we know that the Israelis have managed to get bits of him. But nobody can agree on which bits. Some say a leg, others an arm or an eye. There's a possibility he uses a wheelchair now. I've never met anyone in Gaza who told me, you know, I saw Muhammad Def. No one. If he is walking on Gaza streets, no one in Gaza will know him. No one. And actually, some have speculated that he might have died in an attack already and that Hamas is just keeping his myth alive but not many people buy that. I think he's still alive because I think that the Israeli intelligence, they can read the uh, fingerprints of his action in Gaza. Even Hamas call him a shadow, the shadow man. Imad al-Sus is an academic from Gaza. He's currently a fellow at the University of Tunis. He's written a book on Hamas and interviewed lots of members. And in my interviews, I never mentioned his name because mentioning his name could put uh, me or anybody in danger. And the, the uh, security services in Gaza, they were afraid that the Israeli intelligence will assassinate him. And he has this story told to him by a childhood friend of Mohammed Daif's about how paranoid the military leader was that he'd be targeted. This friend from the old neighbourhood said Mohammed Daif took huge precautions he would come for lunch, but he wouldn't touch a thing in case it had been poisoned. He said, we were not giving him our own food. His mother was coming every day to give him food in his hand. 
Hamas is a political organisation with a military wing. But in recent years, it's evolved, and it seems the political leadership may have lost control. Many of those leaders have left Gaza, ostensibly to avoid assassination. Now they live abroad in Qatar and Turkey, in far more luxurious surroundings. In an interview with The New Yorker in the days immediately following the attacks, Musa Abu Mazouk, a senior political leader in Hamas, said that none of Hamas's leaders who were not involved in the military wing knew about the October 7th attack before it happened. Mohammed Daif is not living in luxury outside Gaza. It's likely he's underground in his network of tunnels. Shlomi Eldar isn't sure how long he'll last. I have sources in Gaza from Hamas and other from PLO, the Fatah. They have their intelligence and it's very known. Muhammad Def has shells in his brain. He lost his eyes. A missile, an Israeli missile, hit him. So he can't be, <laughs> he can't be a healthy man. It might be hard to understand why, given all the death and destruction, but there are still many in Gaza who see him as a hero. Just days ago, young men were out on the streets chanting his name. And I think the symbolism that Dave is imposing since 2021 is very big. Here's Imad from Tunis University. He says the mythology around Mohammed Daif, as distasteful as we might find it, is already pervasive in Gazan society. The people in Gaza die like chickens, but still nobody blaming Hamas military wing. It makes people tolerate even death. And I think his position now is very important. I don't think any other leader in Hamas can, can do this. So does it matter if Israel kills him? No, no. Because the attack has already happened. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Safe, efficient and reliable railways help to keep us all connected, thanks to Network Rail. Yet, maintenance on the railways is a risky and sometimes fatal business. At Network Rail, two previous attempts to invigorate its track worker safety programmes had failed, leaving employees feeling sceptical that the organisation could ever get railway safety right. Since 2019, 
EY teams have worked with Network Rail to deliver a transformation that improved safety protocols and changed employee behaviour around safety. Network Rail Rail Hub, a new digital safety platform and app, eliminated inaccurate paper trails and worked offline, so it could be used by workers in remote locations. Since the platform was introduced, near misses affecting maintenance workers on the railways have fallen by 40%. Read the full story at ey.com. It's impossible to know Mohammed Dave's true motives for the October 7th attacks. What's clear is that there are some among Hamas's leadership who are uncomfortable with the new image their organisation has acquired. The Al-Qassam brigades probably don't care very much what the world thinks about them. Moderates within the political leadership absolutely do. Hugh Lovett is a senior policy fellow with the Middle East and North Africa programme at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Prior to this, there had been ongoing contacts between Western governments and Hamas, some direct, some indirect. That didn't lead to the breakthroughs that Hamas wanted, but there was still that track. Oh, those tracks. Those tracks no longer really exist. I mean, no one can now imagine Western governments moving towards some sort of acceptance of Hamas in a way that they could have done three weeks ago. There's this inherent tension within Hamas. On the one hand, the demands of governing a population of two million people living under blockade, and on the other, a military wing still primarily motivated by the desire to reclaim land by whatever means possible. By unleashing this attack, Mohammed Daif has made sure that Hamas will never go back to administering Gaza. It's possible that was part of his calculation. I don't see the Gaza Strip ever returning to how it was before, to that status quo ante, because I don't think Hamas can accept that. It's impossible to ignore what that status quo involved for the Palestinian people a population locked in and left to stagnate on their tiny strip of land. There's a sense among some experts that the military factions of Hamas following Mohammed Daif were prepared to do anything to change that status quo, wherever that change might land them. To me, what they've done now was a sort of a, a last roll of the dice to try to break out of this, of this situation. So when you say a last roll of the dice... This is a kind of throw all your cards up in the air, better to die quickly than to slowly asphyxiate in this forever blockade. That is my reading of it, yeah. And the Palestinian issue is back now, front and centre of the news agenda. One can say that Hamas has actually now accomplished a lot of its near-term objectives. It humiliated the IDF. Uh, It has bolstered its standing not just with its own constituency, but also amongst, I would say, Palestinians and Arab public opinion, who don't necessarily see or believe all the images of Hamas atrocities, but what they do see is Hamas defeating the IDF. It's also taken hundreds of hostages, which was a key objective, no doubt, because it wants to try to secure the release of um, Palestinian prisoners. So it's accomplished that. But at what price for ordinary Palestinians? The response from Israel has been one of total destruction. Much of Gaza has been left uninhabitable. At the time we're recording this, more than 7,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza in the last three weeks. 
Nearly half the population are children, and they make up nearly half the victims of Israel's bombardment. The situation is, as you very much hear in the news, it's, it's catastrophic. Here's Professor Abu Sada speaking from Gaza. It's not Hamas who is paying the price of, of, of the current Israeli retaliation. It's a Palestinian civilian population. Most of Hamas people are underground in the tunnels. Or, in the case of much of the political leadership, abroad in Qatar. A few days ago, Khalid Mashal, the former head of Hamas and still a very senior figure in the organisation, was interviewed on the Saudi channel Al Arabiya. They say Khalid Mashal is sitting in an air-conditioned room talking about war, jihad and bombings. We're in the middle of the battlefield. Nobody is sitting this one out. The Hamas leaders in Gaza and abroad are running this together. The people of Gaza woke up to this attack on Israel. The other factions, the Palestinian Authority and the people of Gaza, they were not consulted about this. You made the decision all by yourselves. Nations are not easily liberated. The Russians sacrificed 30 million people in World War II in order to liberate it from Hitler's attack. The Vietnamese sacrificed three and a half million people until they defeated the Americans. Afghanistan sacrificed millions of martyrs to defeat the USSR and then the US. The Algerian people sacrificed six million martyrs over 130 years. The Palestinian people are just like any other nation. No nation is liberated without sacrifices. Death and destruction... Even Palestinian death and destruction is the strategy. The problem, says Professor Abu Sada, is the timing. There is one missing thing here, that uh, the, the Algerians were supported by Egypt and much of the Arab world. The Vietnamese were supported by the Russians and the Chinese. The Palestinians in Gaza are left alone to deal with this massive Israeli uh, uh, retaliation. He doesn't think it will work. I don't think that the attack that which was carried out on the 7th of October is making the Palestinians closer to self-determination. But, Professor Abisada says, and this makes for difficult listening, there is a sense of revenge. Hamas has, has uh, uh, done something bad to the Israelis that they, they know what it means to be taken hostages. They know now what it means to to, to take uh, their soldiers with their boxers as they were with Palestinian uh, prisoners. It, 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 they know, know what it means to be, to be humiliated. So the Palestinians for, their, for, for the first time in their lives in, in 75 years felt that Israel and the Israelis now know what it means to be, to be on the other side of the situation. For Huda, living in the West Bank, there's just horror. She fears for the Palestinian cause. To me, it's a danger on our cause that is a noble cause, a human rights cause, a cause that should not be uh, tainted by actions like Hamas. And she fears for Palestinian lives. She has family in Gaza. There are five million Palestinians who have been all lumped under Hamas 
called terrorists and being killed like animals. We were referred to as animals by this government. Since the October 7th attacks, Israel has dropped around 12,000 tonnes of explosives on Gaza, one of the most densely populated places on Earth. Israeli bombs have hit bakeries, schools, places of worship, hospitals and refugee camps. Almost a million and a half people have been internally displaced. For over three weeks, the Israeli government has also ordered a full siege of Gaza, shutting off electricity, water, food and fuel supplies. According to the World Health Organization, a third of hospitals in Gaza have stopped functioning. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, has warned against what he calls clear violations of international humanitarian law and said the appalling attacks of October 7th could not justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. But Israel's bombardment has intensified. The north of the territory is said to have been hit on a scale never seen before. For Huda in the West Bank, watching all this play out feels like torture. And she fears that the scale of the bombardment in Gaza and the resulting humanitarian crisis will radicalise more young people. Because I'm telling you, the struggle that the Palestinian women are having now is how to protect their children. I'm working with women on a daily basis who don't sleep. They literally sit by the door to make sure that their kids are not leaving home. So we are actually fighting our own fight in order to protect our children in the midst of that violence that could be easily internalised. And there's the question of what Israel hopes to achieve now in Gaza. What appears to be a significant escalation in attacks on Gaza. We're seeing intense strikes there, flashes and rumblings across that skyline. Can you wipe out violence with more violence? Here's Hugh Lovett from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Even if it could eradicate Hamas in Gaza, which I don't think is a given, and which would come at tremendous cost in terms of thousands of dead Palestinians, total destruction, and likely also the Israeli casualties, even if it could do that, Hamas will come back in Gaza at some point. It is a almost a fact of, of life that will not easily disappear and will certainly not be suppressed through Israeli military means. When Israel talks about wanting to destroy Hamas, to eradicate it, it won't succeed. It's, it's promising or it's, it's vowing to do something that it cannot do. So there must be concerns about what happens next. If the Israelis do manage to disable Hamas, who takes over? Because leaving a vacuum's not an option. Various ideas have already been floated. All of them are pretty terrible. Israel could annex Gaza and manage the population itself, but that's likely to lead to a situation like Britain and the US had in Iraq, with non-stop attacks and hostility. Another option would be to ask Fatah, which runs the Palestinian Authority, to take over governance in Gaza. But they barely have control over the West Bank. And again, you risk ending up with aggression and violence. Or you could invite senior figures in Gaza, clan leaders and mayors, to come together in a new unity government managed by other Arab states like the Egyptians, Qataris or Saudis. But that wouldn't be easy to pull off. And then, of course, there's the question of a self-governing Palestinian state. 
At the moment, that feels like daydreaming while a nightmare unfolds. For now, the killing just begets more killing, suffering more suffering. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. UK business leaders are quietly confident that better times are coming. More than half of those who responded to the recent EY CEO Outlook survey believe their profitability would increase in 2024. As businesses look to the future, transformation is clearly front and centre on the 2024 CEO agenda, with the vast majority of leaders planning to maintain or accelerate their transformational change in 2024. With 76% of CEOs in agreement that AI will deliver transformative efficiency benefits to their organisation, how can AI be put to use to enhance innovation efforts? Find out how integrating AI into your business could minimise the negative impacts on the workforce, boost productivity and improve overall employee experience by reading the full report at ey.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. Mohammed Daif's brutality has had a catastrophic, indelible effect on the story of the 75-year conflict. The tectonic plates have shifted in this region. There's no going back. Israelis and Palestinians will have to find new ways to live together. This episode of the Slow Newscast was reported by me, Chloe Hadjimatheou. It was produced by Claudia Williams. The editor was Kerry Thomas. Sound design by Sam Mbatha. <laughs>